Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen. This is CPAC's special continuing coverage of Budget 2021. The Finance Minister has unveiled the Liberal government's first budget in two years, a massive document, the first federal budget tabled by a female finance minister, a pandemic budget that prolongs and enhances supports for hard-hit workers and businesses and promises hefty social spending, including a $30 billion-plus national child care program to spur economic recovery when the pandemic ends. We have extensive coverage of the budget with reaction and analysis this hour. Let's begin with the key budget details. The finance minister was eager to frame the context for the Liberal government's first budget in two years. We need to punch our way out of the COVID recession. Facing a population and an economy beaten down by the pandemic, this budget promises new spending of more than $101 billion over the next three years. The signature promise, a new subsidized national, primarily not-for-profit child care and early learning program. Almost $30 billion over five years to build the plan and more than $8 billion in ongoing support to provinces, territories and Indigenous partners. By next year, the finance minister wants fees for regulated child care in Canada cut by 50% and down to an average of $10 a day by 2026. The finance minister is promising legislation by this fall to make it happen, saying child care is a must-have to help women recover from the so-called she-session, which has seen 16,000 women leave the workforce completely. Most women end up bearing the brunt of the child care work. And when things get tough, when child care disappears, as has happened during COVID, it ends up being women who leave their jobs. There's also an additional $30 billion in ongoing pandemic support for programs for hard-hit workers and businesses, including the wage and rent supports until the end of September. The budget also closes a loophole that allows companies to boost executive salaries even while receiving the subsidy. There's additional targeted spending, $7 billion, including tax incentives and grants and loans to help small and medium businesses expand and adapt to e-commerce after the pandemic. 28,000 young Canadians will be hired to help businesses adapt to new technology. The budget predicts 160,000 small businesses will benefit from these measures. There's also a billion dollars to help tourism businesses recover after the pandemic. The budget also promises $3 billion over five years to ensure provinces and territories apply standards for long-term care and make permanent changes. There's a one-time top-up in August of $500 to old-age security recipients 75 and older who faced extra costs during the pandemic. And a promise to those same seniors that they'll get an annual 10% increase in OAS payments starting in July of 2022. The budget also promises legislation to implement a $15 federal minimum wage. There's nearly $9 billion more over six years to enrich the Canada Workers' Benefit for another 1 million low-wage employees. And there's more spending to tackle inequality in Canada. The budget invests $18 billion over the next five years to close the health, education and economic gaps between Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples. 
$300 million will go to funding black-led initiatives to fight racism and support black-led nonprofit organizations. The budget also proposes $3.8 billion in new and existing funding to repair, build, or convert 35,000 affordable housing units. And as expected, the budget promises more than $17 billion to green the economy and help meet more ambitious greenhouse gas reduction targets, including 10 years of 50% tax cuts for businesses that make zero emissions technology. There's money for interest-free loans for retrofitting existing commercial buildings and 200,000 homes in an effort to create a vibrant retrofit industry. It also includes a new investment tax credit for carbon capture technologies to cut emissions by 15 megatons each year. There are no measures to cool Canada's red-hot housing market other than a 1% tax on vacant residential property owned by non-resident, non-Canadian owners. That starts next January. And the budget proposes a sales tax of 3% of revenues on digital giants starting next January. That will add $200 million to government coffers next year, $900 million the year after that. There is a new tax on luxury cars and private aircraft valued at more than $100,000 and boats worth over $250,000. That starts next year. Now, anyone looking for detailed timetables for returning to balanced budgets will be disappointed. The budget reveals a deficit for this year of $354.2 billion. For next year, it's expected to be just under $155 billion, but could be up to $15 billion higher than that if pandemic restrictions continue longer than predicted. The deficit drops to just over $30 billion by 2026. The government's fiscal anchor announced in this budget is a commitment to unwinding COVID-19-related deficits and reducing the debt-to-GDP ratio over the medium term. That debt-to-GDP ratio was roughly 30% when the pandemic hit. It's expected to be around 50% through 2026. The government will face lots of questions about whether this volume of new spending is necessary when the economy is already on the road to recovery. The budget makes the case that major stimulus is needed now to build new skills, new jobs and a new resiliency for the next economic shock. Candace Bergen is the deputy leader of the official opposition. She joins me now. Uh, Candace Bergen, good to see you again. Thanks for being here. Hi, Peter. Nice to see you. Let's start with your assessment of this budget. Uh, what do you think? It's a risky budget. It's, uh, it's an election budget that really isn't thinking about getting people back to work in a serious way, people to work right across the country in every sector. It's a budget that's not thinking about our kids or our grandkids. It's just a lot of spending, which the Liberals like to do. And usually, by the end of it, we know where about half of the money went, and the other half has disappeared or gone to their friends and, uh, and insiders. So that's what I'm seeing. It's a, it's a big budget. I've got more to look at, but my first glance, our first glance at it, it's a risky liberal election budget that is spending a lot of money and not getting Canadians back to work. It's spending a lot of that money uh, on uh, the centerpiece of the budget, which is the child care program, $30 billion up front, $8 billion a year after that, uh, if it does get off the ground after all these many years of talking about it. Is your party prepared to vote against a budget and that child care package? Well, we're going to talk about it as a caucus, but listen, it's almost laughable when you see the Liberals talk about creating a universal childcare program or spaces. I mean, they've been promising that for so many years, I've actually forgotten how long it's been. Uh, conservatives are the ones who actually introduced a program or universal uh, childcare benefit that actually gave money 
to families directly, and the Liberals adopted that and they've continued it. So uh, I don't trust the Liberals when it comes to child care. I don't trust them to respect that families have different needs um, based on where they live, based on if they want maybe other family members to look after their children, if they want to be uh, having some creativity with child care. The Liberals don't ever seem to respect that. For them, it's kind of a one-size-fits-all. And they talk about spending this money and creating spaces, but there really is no plan. My understanding is they haven't even talked to the provinces about this uh, so-called so child care plan. That's so, all still. I mean, a lot of the a lot of the measures in this budget hinge on conversations with uh, the provinces about areas of provincial jurisdiction. But uh, on the child care piece, how concerned are you that uh, voting against that plan? I mean, the government portrays this plan as look, it's it's not just a social plan; it's really an economic plan. Sixteen thousand women dropped out of the workforce during the pandemic. We need to give them options to uh, get back into the workforce and stay there. So, if, if voting that uh, that idea down. Are you, how concerned are you that costs you votes with working women? Well, we're talking to women directly. I can tell you, I'm, uh, I'm uh, whether it's on Zoom or I've been able to in Manitoba go out safely, meet with some small businesses, women entrepreneurs, women who've had to be at home now trying to teach their children uh, school lessons while at the same time working, and women have borne the brunt of this pandemic. But the Liberals have failed to deliver previously in supporting them where they need to be supported. I mean, we've seen this before with Trudeau. He's a lot of talk on feminism, a lot of talk on respecting and supporting women, but it's his actions that are speaking louder than words. So I, I think that you're going to see, I know you're going to see a plan from Conservatives that will once again respect and value the work that women do and value the fact that women want to have choice when it comes to child care. Families want to have choice. Families don't want the government telling them what to do. And then, again, these are the same women who care about their kids and they're thinking about their grandkids. And I'm hearing from moms and dads who are very concerned with this massive spending when when there is no plan and, and no fiscal uh, way to get back to any kind of responsibility. And we're still seeing small businesses shutting down, you know. Bay Street's doing fine, but I can tell you Main Street, Main Street in a lot of our ridings are not doing fine. Main Street is shutting down and the Liberals disappointed them with no plan for today and for sure no plan for the future. So all, all of this is happening, of course, in the context of a, a, a likely election in the, in the months ahead at some point in the not too distant future. So you're, you're saying Conservatives will come, be coming out with their own child care plan soon? You'll see it. You will see a, a child care plan from Conservatives. Um, you know, we are, we're also in the context, and this is what most people are consumed with right now, it's the third wave of a pandemic. We have a prime minister who had, had a couple of jobs he needed to do and needed to do them well. One, one was procuring vaccines, and he didn't do it. And I can tell you here, even in Manitoba, you're seeing in Ontario, in BC, the third wave coming where other countries are starting to open up because they're getting vaccinated and our prime minister couldn't get that done. So I, I don't have a lot of faith in him. I, I'll be very frank. I do not have a lot of faith in, right. in the prime there, minister to be able to get it done. There's another 18 billion in spending in this budget to green the economy, investments to allow companies to green operations, loans for retrofits, tax incentives for uh, carbon capture technologies and so on, all to try and help the government reach its zero emissions, a net zero economy and reach its emissions targets. So your leader and your party uh, just unveiled last week uh, your own climate plan with a federal price on carbon. So what do you think of what the Liberals put on offer here today? How is it different from what you're offering? Well, well you know, it's interesting because I've been meeting with a lot of uh, venture capitalists and other groups who 
they've said to me directly, we don't want the Liberals have announced a lot of money to support initiatives, but we're never seeing the money. They're trying to pick winners and losers, and it ends up being well-connected Liberals who get the funding. And so that does concern me, even with uh, this initiative uh, to uh, to green our economy. Will it, number one, actually get to those who can do a good job of reducing emissions? And it's usually not government that knows how to pick those uh, those winners and losers. And then will it actually reduce emissions? And can Canada play a role in reducing global emissions? We believe as conservatives that Canada can with our green technology. So the Liberals aren't showing okay. how this spending will get to the organizations, the companies, the sectors that can reduce emissions and keep jobs in Canada and grow jobs in Canada. Uh, I think, and I've seen the Liberals do this before, where certain parts of our economy, natural resources, for example, are, are shamed and ignored and basically told, you just have to shut down. That does nothing to help the, uh, glo reduce global emissions, and it sure hurts jobs in this country. So that's what we're seeing more of with this budget. All right, Candace Bergen, the Deputy Leader of the Conservative Party, the official opposition. Thanks for your time tonight. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. The Bloc Québécois will propose a sub-amendment to the budget, likely calling for more help for seniors and a big increase in health transfers to the provinces. But leader Yves-François Blanchet isn't saying whether he will support the budget or not just yet. We will use each and every possible procedure during the coming days in order to try to convince the Parliament that some, some improvements have to be inserted into that budget, including, of course, the support for the elders who terribly need and deserve it, and the transfer for health care for the provinces who have, which have unanimously asked for it. Well, the NDP leader Jagmeet Singh has said he will not bring down the minority government over the budget during a raging pandemic. He's with me now. Let's see what he's thinking today in the wake of the budget. Jagmeet Singh, good to see you again. Good uh, to see you as well. I guess let's let's before we get into your reaction to the budget, and I know you've got lots to say about it. Let's settle the political piece right up front here. Uh, are you have you changed your mind at all about whether the government gets a deserves to live on past this budget day and past a budget vote given the pandemic? Well, we look at the, the numbers in Ontario, record numbers of cases. We see field hospitals being set up. We see reports of some of the poorest communities with the highest risk of infection, the highest infection rates, with the lowest vaccination. These are really troubling signs. Uh, IC units are being overwhelmed. Doctors and, and nurses and healthcare workers have been talking to me about how stretched thin they are and how horrible things are. Given that context, uh, as Canadians have said when asked the questions, it would be unsafe and it would be unfair to have an election right now. And so I absolutely agree. In fact, I would add it would be irresponsible to hold an election right now. And that's why I've made it very clear I will not be triggering an election. Uh, it would be the wrong thing to do. What, what, what form will that uh, demonstration uh, take? Because there's a difference between uh, supporting the budget to keep the government alive and deciding perhaps to abstain from the vote, which might uh, end up having the same effect if there aren't enough opposition numbers in the House to, uh, to uh, vote no confidence in the government. Uh, can you tell us what tactic you're going to take? Well, I can tell you that you're absolutely right in the sense that there are many ways to critique and to raise concerns about the budget, and we will be open to using those. And we will continue to apply pressure to say we need better access to paid sick leave. We need to see uh, real commitments to getting vaccines to the people and the communities that need it most. We want to see 
uh, universal pharmacare. We want to see a tax on the ultra-rich so that we can contribute back to society and invest in people. So we'll reserve uh, how we continue to apply that pressure and to critique the government, but I can give people the confidence and the reassurance that New Democrats and myself as leader, we will not be triggering an election. It is the wrong thing and the irresponsible thing to do, but we'll keep on fighting for people. Okay, uh, to, to be clear, absent a raging pandemic, uh, would you vote against this budget? Well, I could tell you that there's some deep concerns I have, and the biggest concern I have is that the question that's on a lot of people's minds coming off of one of the worst years ever, people lost jobs, lost businesses, people lost their life. They wanted to answer the question, who's gonna help pay for this pandemic? Who's gonna pay for the recovery? And the liberals answered that question. They said, well, it's not gonna be the ultra rich. Despite the fact that the ultra rich in this pandemic have grown their wealth, have become wealthier, have become richer. The richest Canadians, the richest billionaires increased their wealth by over 62 billion. Despite all of that, the Liberals have failed to show the courage and have frankly failed to choose to make the richest, the ultra-rich, pay their fair share, which, is, which means naturally then as a consequence that families are going to pay the price, and that's wrong. And, and so I'll continue to raise that concern and continue to fight to say that we've got to invest in people by making the ultra-rich pay their fair share, invest in pharmacare, and make sure we've got a healthcare system that covers people when they need it. This pandemic has shown the problems, and we need to fix those. What, uh, what do you like about the budget? Well, one of the things that we, we fought long and hard for is that there needs to be uh, an approach to systemic racism that includes better data collection. And I have to acknowledge that the Liberals had, did put that forward in the budget and it does cover uh, some of the, the real important steps required to make sure there's better data collection so that we can get at the root causes of some of the systemic uh, racism that exists in, in various structures and systems. So that's, that's a good measure. But in general, my concern is that the Liberals have said a lot of nice things in this budget. They've signaled a lot of good things. Problem is, is that they've done that before and then they break that promise. They promised childcare for 27 years and have broken that promise without any, any hesitation. They recently promised universal pharmacare in 2019, campaigned on it in the throne speech, promised it again, yet have completely walked away from it. So that's a recent example of how easily the Liberals will make a promise and then break it. So that's really my bigger concern that some of these things are good, some good announcements, but the Liberals have broken their promises despite making good ones. Do you and see that's this, what we're up against. Do you see this as a, uh, effectively a campaign platform from the Liberals? And uh, I, I think we're hearing in, in your reaction tonight uh, the message you're going to take to the people, because I, I suspect we, we're going to have an election before we get something diff different as a campaign option and platform than what we heard in the, in the Liberal budget today. So are you happy to you know, go to the hustings fighting that budget as their campaign platform? Well, I just want to fight for people, and I want to fight the fact that the Liberals say one thing and do another. So whatever they promise, whether it's in this budget or in a future campaign, that's really the test we want to put to Canadians. You know, Liberals will say a lot to get elected. Do they actually follow through with it? They've said a lot of good things, sure. But how many of those things have they followed through on? One of the things that we've seen in this budget, we've seen in this budget that is a positive sign, investments to clean Indigenous, uh, to make sure there's clean ind drinking water for Indigenous communities. They made that promise six years ago and broke that promise, didn't meet their deadline. That was a choice. Now they're choosing again to make that same promise. They've made promises again and again, and not in the distant past, but very recent as well. And they've broken that promise. And that to me is a bigger problem. And I want Canadians to know, you can count on New Democrats, you can count on me to fight for you. We have fought for you, we have won, and we'll continue to do that. All right, uh, Jagmeet Singh, leader of the NDP. Uh, always good to talk to you, thanks tonight. Thanks so much. Also have reaction tonight from Green Party leader, Annamie Paul.
We congratulate the government on the things that uh, helped protect people better today. We're certainly going to be supportive, but we really want to underline that there are some significant um, gaps, some significant holes that mean that the people who have been most badly impacted uh, during this pandemic still are not sufficiently protected. All right, let's bring in three members of Parliament now to debate the budget measures unveiled by the Finance Minister today. Sean Fraser is the Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Finance. Pat Kelly is the small business critic for the official opposition Conservatives. And you see Peter Julian as well. He's the finance critic for the NDP. Good to see you all, uh, gentlemen. Thanks for being with me tonight. Mr. Fraser, why does your government believe this is the right budget for the Times? Uh, well, look, this is a really important day. Uh, we know that over the course of this pandemic, people have needed support, and we came up with a budget that's going to support them. Uh, this budget is designed to continue the fight against COVID-19, support Canadians through this pandemic, and set the course for a recovery that is both sustainable and inclusive. Uh, i got to tell you, I sunk in a lot of work over the last number of months consulting with Canadians from every region of Canada, and I'm very pleased to see the measures have landed today in this budget and look forward to supporting it. All right. Mr. Kelly, why do you think, uh, what do Conservatives believe, believe this is the wrong budget for Canada right now? Well, we have a, a lot of concern about uh, the, this budget. There are absolutely no fiscal anchors of, of, of any sort. And uh, uh, the, the very fact that uh, small businesses and, and Canadians still do need support uh, because of the COVID crisis, but that's entirely on this government. Uh, this government's failure to deliver vaccines in a timely uh, manner so that we could uh, uh, have uh, escaped the effects of this third wave. So this this third wave um, is, is on the shoulders of, of the government that has failed to procure vaccines. And so now we, here we are um, having to extend programs even further um, because of, of the ongoing uh, crisis and uh, without any real plan uh, for uh, for any kind of fiscal anchor uh, to, to come. We'll, we'll drill down on some of these uh, thoughts you're all raising, and we'll, but let's get Mr. Julian in on the conversation. Uh, Peter Julian, uh, your party's already said it won't see the government defeated over this budget. That doesn't mean you like what's in it. Uh, so is this the budget the country needs right now? Uh, sadly, no. I mean, there are provisions that, that I think are, are are important. But when we look at the third wave and, and what people are looking for, we have frontline workers that uh, don't have access to paid sick leave. That is a huge problem. wasn't addressed in the budget, despite uh, Jagmeet Singh uh, calling for it. Uh, repeatedly uh, stepping up vaccinations, major problem in Canada, not dealt with. I, I think the biggest problem is that the perspective of the, the Liberal government is that uh, regular Canadians can wait or can see a dramatic uh, reduction in CERB benefits or even elimination of CERB benefits in the weeks to come. But Canada's ultra wealthy that have benefited enormously through this pandemic. Uh, Canada's billionaires over $78 billion in, in accumulated new wealth just during the pandemic alone are not obliged to, to pay their fair share in any way. There's no wealth tax. There's no uh, pandemic profiteering uh, tax that would actually cut back on what we're seeing. So what it does is enhance the divide, Peter, that uh, we're seeing Canada's billionaires wealthier than ever before. And so many Canadians struggling, people with disabilities, families, seniors struggling okay. to put to make ends meet. That's that's the huge contradiction in this budget. Mr. Fraser, the, the major social spending piece of this budget is the $30 billion on a national child care program, then $8 billion going forward. If this program gets off the ground, and we've been talking about it in this country for a long time, but, um, 
tell me, tell, tell me how you think that actually becomes a real thing, uh, given the obstacles the government's run into in trying to set up national child care programs in the past. Well, I don't necessarily think that this is going to be a, a difficult thing to implement now that the federal government is coming to the table with cash. And provinces uh, obviously should recognize uh, that over the course of this pandemic, there's been a disproportionate negative economic impact on women, um, whether it's the number of hours they've worked, the extent to which they suffer job losses. And frankly, this was an issue before the pandemic. We know that but, this but the federal just is, sorry, the federal government does come to the table with some strings attached. It's a fo it's a focus on it's a focus on, uh, you know, not for profit child care spaces. It's in a, it's provincial jurisdiction. The government's coming. It's a it's a. 50-50 program split, so the government says these are the rules, now put up the money. Um, how are, do you think provinces are going to respond to that? I have already received texts after the budget dropped this afternoon from my provincial counterparts indicating that they would love to have a meeting with the minister to see if different provinces could be first to the table. The reality is the pandemic has shone a light on the economic consequences that COVID-19 has had on working women and childcare is an obvious investment that will set the stage for re uh, recovery that is inclusive and will give women the same opportunities that people who look like me have routinely. All right, Mr. Mr. Kelly, where's your party on on a national child care program such as the one being proposed by the Liberals? Well, it's uh, it's early uh, on in, in this budget. Uh, it's only been tabled for uh, for a couple of hours. We're uh, going to, to look very carefully at what's proposed. But there, from from uh, at first glance, it looks like there's very little detail on this program. I mean, my, we, we know uh, just how there are many, many Canadian families, many Canadian women that uh, that are really struggling to uh, to have access to to childcare. It's a problem uh, that that we all recognize. Uh, but, but, but do you, do you think uh, the country really needs? To. Do you think the country needs a national childcare program uh, led by the by the national government to, to to make it happen? Do you think we're there? Any any program is going to have to have some flexibility. The, a one size fits all is not going to work for Canadians. Uh, it won't work for provinces and uh, for for a government that has failed so uh, uh, obviously on just simply something like procuring vaccines. I can't imagine that it could expect to to achieve the goals that it sets out in this budget around reducing the cost of childcare by 50 percent in, in a year and a half uh, without any plan uh, of how to get there. All right, Mr. Julian, uh, how do you see this coming together or do you? Uh, well, I, I, I certainly hope for the best, but given this government's track record, for example, on public universal pharmacare, they make commitments. And then, uh, as we saw today with the budget, pharmacare is now dead. They're, they're not moving forward with it, not providing the funding. So uh, I'm worried about the same thing happening with childcare. We support childcare. The NDP has campaigned on it relentlessly because we know that the impacts have been disproportionate on Canadian women and Canadian families, we need to put in place a childcare program. But here, here is the dilemma that the provinces are being forced uh, into. Uh, there is no improvement in what have been significant healthcare cuts, and there hasn't been the increase in the healthcare transfer. Uh, so ultimately, when the federal government comes forward and says, well, we'll pay 50% of childcare, provinces are going to have to decide between health care and child care. Uh, that is simply uh, tragic given the size and scope of this pandemic. And again, we come back to wealth tax, the pandemic profits tax. These are the kinds of measures that we know create tens of billions of dollars of 
of investment ability of the federal government that would actually allow provinces not only to improve their health care systems, but also put in place universal child care. It is regrettable okay. uh, that the Liberals have lacked the courage to do that. Mr. Fraser, so clearly the government's made a choice here. What can you tell us about you know, maybe health care conversations down the road? But to Mr. Julian's point, uh, a lot of the provinces weren't saying uh, get us a national child care program. They were saying send us more money for health care uh, because of what's happened in the pandemic. So the government's made a different choice here. Tell me about that. Well, our choice in this budget has not been determined by what others are asking for. It's been based on what the evidence demonstrates is the smartest economic policy. However, I should point out, and Mr. Julian will be pleased to see, that this budget includes a $4 billion increase to the Canada health transfer. He indicated that there was no support for paid sick leave. It includes an extension to the Canada Recovery Sickness Benefit. He's indicated that there's no support for vaccine administration when there's an additional $1 billion in transfers to the provinces. So before he objects to the measures that he he thinks are not in the budget, I would kindly suggest that my friend takes the time to read through it. Okay, but provinces were asking for a lot more than $4 billion in health transfers. Uh, yeah. We all know that. Uh, Mr. Kelly, what about the, the measures? There are lots of measures in here to uh, uh, extend supports for uh, uh, small businesses and businesses in general uh, for, uh, during the pandemic. Also, uh, measures to help uh, businesses uh, green their operations as part of the government's uh, efforts to reach its uh, emissions targets. Um, is there are they doing enough there for small business uh, to get them through the rest of the pandemic? Well, I mean, that, that's businesses are in, in survival mode. And uh, and yes, the, the federal government has a responsibility to to support small businesses that are being compelled to close their doors due to uh, uh, public health requirements. And, and again, that is all on this government. We are months behind where we we could have been had this government done a better job of procuring vaccine. Small businesses want their customers back. I mean, their first choice is not to be supported by the government. Uh, a small business's first choice is to have their customers back, have their businesses back, be able to focus on on things like uh, improving the, their, their productivity through better technology um, and uh, not just to, to be thinking about uh, the, the survival okay. mode that they're in right now. Mr. Julian, just a final question to you here. The government presents this budget as a as transformational and investment in growth and people and uh, perhaps most important of all in the resiliency of the economy and the workforce to, to uh, absorb another shock when it comes. And we all know at some point we'll get another shock to the economy. Do you see it that way? Do you see this as a transformational budget? Sadly, no. And, and this is the, the difference. The Prime Minister has always been very good at spin and, and not very good at the substance. And the fact that we are seeing an undermining of our healthcare system and, and at a time of climate change, no real impacts in terms of, of making that transition to a clean energy economy while, while the federal Liberals continue to heavily support and subsidize uh, oil and gas CEOs and uh, are spending $20 billion on Trans Mountain Pipeline. Uh, all of these things need to come together. And this is why it's so perplexing uh, that a wealth tax supported by over 80% of Canadians, a pandemic's profits tax, when you've got uh, uh, whole sectors that have made tens of billions of dollars in profit during this pandemic, uh, measures supported by the vast majority of Canadians, the Liberals have turned their backs on. So right. they, they tinker and they do smaller measures and they try to spin what is transformational. Well, uh, I, I think Canadians will be uh, will be doubtful of that. We're, we're out of time on that. But, we, you know, one thing about transformation we all know is that it, it, you don't know if transformation actually occurs until uh, the operation runs its course to see if it's happened. So there's some time to see what happens next in all of this. But uh, to all of you, thanks for your time tonight. Appreciate it. Pleasure Thank to be you. here. Thank you. Thank you, Peter.
The federal budget commits more than $30 billion to create a national child care and early learning program as a centerpiece of the economic recovery plan to ensure more women can enter the workforce and stay there if they choose to. But child care advocates, well, they've heard these promises for years. They've been waiting a long time and they're still waiting. Two of the leading child care advocates in the country are with me now. Susan Prentice is a professor of sociology at the University of Manitoba. And Sophia Muhammad is a registered early childhood educator, child care policy researcher and faculty member at George Brown College in the School of Early Childhood Education. Good to see you both. Thanks for being here. Um, Susan Prentice, if I can, let me start with you. What's your reaction to this national child care proposal uh, put forward by the government in the budget? Well, it's transformative. It's historic. It's a good investment. It will make a difference for Canada, and I think it's the right thing to do. I'm delighted. Okay. Uh, how do you see this? I mean, we've been down this road before, as, as you know. Uh, what I mean, are you more enthusiastic, more uh, hopeful than you have been in, in past iterations of, of national child care proposals? And, and if so, why? I, I am more hopeful, and I've been at this for a long time. Uh, I wrote a doctoral dissertation about World War II and the last time Canada had a national child care program. I think that COVID has made it very clear that care is crucial to our economy and that uh, Economics, public policy, and budgets have to take gender seriously, and this budget does. And I think that we've seen very clearly that everybody depends on someone who depends on childcare, and the federal government is about to put some meat on that understanding. Sophia Mohammed, let me let me hear from you. What's your reaction to what you heard today? So I think you know, being relatively new to the childcare sector, and and hearing for the first time Minister Christia Freeland making this commitment um, as, a, as a woman and saying, you know, we're going to get this done, gives me a lot of optimism and hope. And, and we know that this investment is, is a historic one. It's one that's been called on for many years. Uh, it is a it's a generational investment, and we're re as advocates, we're really looking forward to seeing um, it coming into play and, and seeing what cooperation, you know, exists between the provinces and territories and Indigenous governments and um, the federal government as well. We, you know, already we hear, uh, we've heard this argument about uh, whose jurisdiction it is. And I know that a, a lot of families get tired of hearing that. Uh, they just want to know about child care options and, and uh, not everybody favors a national child care program, but a lot of people do. So I guess I'm wondering, uh, uh, Susan Prentice, what are, what are the key roadblocks now to making this happen, do you think? Well, the devil will be in the details, as it always is. The federal government has committed to negotiating with provinces, territories, and Indigenous governments. So the terms and conditions will be very important. But we have some clear signals about what, the, what Ottawa thinks is important. We're talking about affordability, accessibility, quality, uh, very importantly, a commitment to not-for-profit services, and buried in the budget today, a commitment to introducing legislation as early as this fall. Right. So I think all of these are signals to watch for. Uh, there is talk, Sophia Mohammed, of a, an advisory council to, to launch these discussions. And as Susan Prentice points out, legislation in the fall, which uh, uh, for a lot of people seems like a marker the government's putting down about, about timetable. But uh, what concerns you about how this could come off the rails? I think, you know, we... We need to look at this as a time for 
provinces and to have the opportunity for provinces and territories to make a huge difference for families um, in terms of affordability and accessibility with the feds paying a part of the bill. Uh, and we need to be sure that, you know, this money is being directed, like like Susan said, to the not-for-profit sector in terms of building capacity, uh, not just for now, but for a long-standing commitment, um, for funding the systems, and also for addressing the wages and working conditions of educators across the country. Uh, because we know that a quality, high-quality early learning and childcare system can really only be achieved by ensuring that our educators are fully supported. Um, and we're hoping that this budget does lay that um, groundwork and lay that foundation. You've, you've both talked about the uh, some of the language in the budget today. It says it will be primarily not-for-profit uh, program. Uh, Susan Prentice, does, does that concern you at all? Does that suggest wiggle room there, or do you think that suggests emphasis? Well, I, I hope it's stronger than emphasis. I hope it's a, a commitment. I live and work in Manitoba, and here in Manitoba, we have the second lowest fees outside of Quebec. If you have a baby in a not-for-profit childcare centre in Winnipeg, you pay $30 a day. It's two and a half times higher in for-profit childcare, and that's not because the staff are being paid uh, worthy wages. So we, we know that as a system, we need to be moving not only supporting a not-for-profit system, but moving to even more public services. And I very much hope those are part of the conditions in Ottawa's transfers. Uh, the finance minister makes the case for childcare, uh, Sophia Mohammed, as a, we've sort of touched on it, a major economic driver. Uh, you know, that's in, in some ways setting aside uh, the social piece because sometimes that comes under fire. If you, if you talk about it as, a, as an economic driver, uh, the effect that could have on, on the economy. So uh, tell me a little bit about that. What, what effect could a robust national childcare plan have on job creation in this country? And, and I suppose in the context of what have we lost because of the lack of a national program? I mean, I think the pandemic has laid bare that the care economy is essential um, to our recovery and, and essential to um, ensuring that we are building back better, um, like the like the federal government likes to say. And, and we know that childcare is essential for women's labor force participation. Um, but the budget also highlights that, you know, it's going to ensure that more women can get back into the workforce. And we know that when childcare is affordable, accessible and flexible, more women are going to be participating in the labor force. And when we take that away and when we saw that, you know, childcare centers and schools closed, we saw that women did predominantly more so than men drop out of the workforce to take on those care roles um, for their families. So by supporting, you know, growth and capacity building in the early learning and childcare sector, we're seeing that investment in um, the economic rationale of more women in the workforce. Yeah, the last number, just to follow up on that, the most updated number I saw, and it may have changed, was 60 thousand women dropping out of the workforce uh, during the pandemic. Uh, Susan Prentice, what, what's the right national model? Uh, let's finish there. Quebec has a version, and a lot of people talk about that. The, I think it's now $8.50 a day for daycare in Quebec. I know the Manitoba government, uh, and you've talked about this, just received a report from KPMG saying, look, higher income families should pay more for their child care. Uh, what's the right model? Well, Quebec provides us with a lot of lessons. You know, for over 20 years, Quebec has been investing in a package of family policy. Um, Childcare services are a part of it, but so are generous and uh, better remunerated family leaves. And Quebec has seen real growth and real access. There are some lessons. Um, one of them is that in the absence of adequate public funding, you will see the, a boom in a for-profit sector and all of the attendant woes that come with that. So we have both positive lessons and some cautions from Quebec. 
And I think the federal government has said very clearly that they'll be uh, trying to learn from those lessons in Quebec. This is a cost-shared program uh, with the provinces, Sophia Mohammed. Um, uh, how difficult do you think it's going to be uh, to convince the provinces who may be resistant to a national program like this to uh, be prepared to go ahead and spend the money? You know, I think the plan is ambitious, but it's also sensible because it does recognize the importance of forging collaboration. Um, and it's not just collaboration between the federal government and provinces and territories and Indigenous partners, but it's also collaboration between um, intersections of gender and work. And, you know, I, I think, again, these are opportunities for the province to really show that they are committing to family policy, that they are committing to supporting families, that they are supporting children, and that they are supporting women um, in building back better and recovering from the pandemic. All right. Susan Prentice, Sophia Mohammed, thank you so much for your perspectives this evening. Uh, great to talk to you. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Well, the budget proposes to spend $3 billion to ensure the provinces and territories provide a high standard of care in long-term care facilities ravaged by the pandemic. There's also increases in old age security payments and funding to look at ways to help seniors stay in their homes longer. Does the budget meet the expectations of seniors advocates? Well, let's find out. Laura Tamlin-Watts is the CEO of CanAge. She is with me now. Uh, Laura Tamlin-Watts, good to see you again. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Uh, let's start there. Does this budget meet your expectations? It was better than we thought it was going to be. There was a lot of chatter, of course, about making it really focused on younger people. But we, of course, we know that those who have been ravaged really hardest have been seniors. So the investment in long-term care is critical. We need to see whether or not that money will be tethered. It's still unclear. So they said they're gonna work with provinces and territories to have that funded, but it is still somewhat unclear. The aging at home is a good piece. We see some investment around creative ways to support it, but it again is a little bit shy of really specifically supporting home care. Okay, let me walk through some of those in more detail. When the finance minister says she wants to spend $3 billion over five years to ensure higher standards in the long-term care facilities, you know, what do you believe that involves? Again, this, a whole lot of the projects or programs in this budget involve, uh, you know, bringing the provinces on side. So what do you think is involved in trying to get, you know, standards across the country for, for long-term care homes, given what we've seen in the pandemic? I think they'll work very carefully through the standards organizations, so the Canadian Standards Organization and our health standards organizations as well. So I think they'll come at it from a regulatory point of view. Those have been announced already, and we're happy to say that CanAge is part of that conversation. Of course, it was very specific to say that they won't be trouncing on any provincial jurisdiction. So by going in through the technical standards, they walk around having to get the provincial approval. So it's a clever way in. Right. Uh, it's a, it might be a way to get around. Do you, so do you think we can get, get to this improvement in standards for long-term care homes without some kind of federal interprovincial fighting? I think we've already seen Alberta 
and Quebec and now Ontario say that they are going to be pushing back against standards. And so I think going in through the accreditation process really makes the accreditation connected to the homes themselves. I suspect that we'll see some political posturing, however, and that seniors may be a bit of a political football in this going forward. The budget itself is silent on whether uh, improved standards in long-term care homes uh, means not-for-profit long-term care. Uh, might be able to continue to coexist with for-profit models. Can it? You know, we've seen, of course, the NDP be very clear that they want to be moving forward exclusively to a not-for-profit. And, of course, the Liberals, I think, are looking at it pragmatically. They don't really have the power to do that very easily. It's not under the Canada Health Act, and unless they open that up or create new federal legislation, it won't have any political reason to do it. The Conservatives have said very specifically they would oppose that. So I think that this is going to be an issue where we're going to see not-for-profit and for profit homes work side by side for this foreseeable future. There's simply not enough money in this budget to create the long-term care homes that we need. And again, it's a little unclear if that money is going to be tethered to standards, right. whether they be non-profit or for-profit, or whether they will give it to the governments provincially under some other kind of agreement. How significant is the one uh, $500 lump sum old age security payment to seniors uh, over 75 that, that comes this summer? And then that's coupled with a promise that there would be a regular annual increase of uh, a, ten, a regular increase of 10% uh, in the OAS uh, for people over the age of 75. Uh, how big of a move forward is that? It's helpful, but it's not substantive in the sense that it's going to really alleviate poverty for people over the age of 75. But it is helpful and a long-standing promise from this government. So it's not a new promise. It's simply the fulfillment of one that has not been made forward for the past several years. You know, we have seen, of course, this government fail seniors in terms of supporting them during the pandemic. There was a one-time payment of $600, a little bit more for people who are in greater need for GIS. But unlike other groups who've been getting monthly payments, seniors are one and done. And we know that their additional costs are really significant. So the additional OAS is helpful, and I think it will help to lift people up as we progress forward. But again, costs are rising and seniors really do need the help. Let's finish on this. There's also $90 million over three years to launch the Age Well at Home initiative uh, to see about keeping seniors in their homes longer. How significant is that? I think it's a great step forward. We've seen previously this government give money to the provinces unrestricted for home care, and they dissipated into provincial treasuries, and we never really saw any great increase in home care. So this is another kick in the can. $90 million is not going to be enough to really help the 92% of seniors who are in the community stay at home. But again, it's a start in the right direction. All right, Laura Tamlin-Watts, uh, always good to talk to you. Thanks again for your time tonight. Take care. Thank you, Peter. Well, our panel of parliamentary journalists have been uh, poring over the budget documents today. Let's bring in Susan Delacourt, columnist with the Toronto Star. Joël Denis Bellavos is the parliamentary bureau chief for La Presse. And John Iveson is a columnist with the National Post and parliamentary bureau chief for Post Media. Good to see you all. Susan, uh, let's start right at the top here. What's your take on this budget? So the first thing that leaped out of me, beyond how big it is, uh, massive, huge thing, is... Um, is how much is dependent on this 
Prime Minister talking to the provinces. Uh, I, I wrote, uh, I hope he liked all those conversations he had with premiers over the last year because on childcare, on pharmacare, on long-term care, on healthcare, he has basically sort of set the table for a never-ending First Minister's conference. Uh, Joel Denis, what about you? What's your take? Well, um, Madame Freeland is arguing that this is a transformational budget. I tend to agree with that. She compares it to the same economic benefit that NAFTA had on the economy by creating, for example, the National Daycare Center. And I think that's a pretty strong word, and we'll see whether this comes out. But uh, this, I think, is a budget that the Liberals can take to the electorate any time, and I think they could win a majority with that kind of budget they crafted over the last few months. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's no no doubt it looks like an election platform, I think. Uh, John, what's your view on this? Yeah, I, I think that that's the, the prime motivation, despite the fact that there's protestations that it's about the future. Um, I always feel caution whenever I hear a politician saying we can't afford not to spend money on things that are going to get me re-elected. And that's precisely what Christian Freeland <laughs> did. Um, there was a lo an awful lot of uh, redistribution of income in that uh, budget, far more than than I thought was necessary, given the fact we've just come off a year where, you know, we were $350 billion in, in the red. So uh, too much too much focus on the short term and not enough in the long term, I think. Susan, the key pillar of the recovery, you touched on it, is a recovery plan is this national child care program. And liberals have been promising that for more than 30 years now. How, how, how close do you think this actually is to becoming a reality? And what are the obstacles in the way? Well, as I said, you know, all of this has to be negotiated. We should say it's a signature moment, though, and I, as a woman, should say this is the first budget from a woman finance minister in history. So this is kind of a fitting uh, theme to it, and definitely that was a theme through the budget for sure, was, uh, you know, uh, what this pandemic has done to women and how much women are behind the jobs and, and growth platform. But I... Um, I've been covering politics for 30 years, like it or not, and I've been hearing childcare promises a lot. They vowed that this is not like the last promises. There is a real path toward getting this done, but we're not going to wake up tomorrow morning with the national childcare program. No, there's although a, she sounds like she's she's talking about you know legislation. She's talking about a, an advisory council and then legislation perhaps in the fall to try and get this thing pushed down the road. Uh, Joël Denis, the finance minister. Look, Quebec's a key piece in this, not because yeah. Quebec would be part of it. Quebec's already got the program that Ottawa says everybody else should have. And uh, the compensation conversation will, will have to take place. So how do you think that goes? Well, in Quebec, they expect to get some money from Ottawa. But uh, I think this one is the most, the most serious push to get a national daycare centre ever. Why? Because you have an experiment uh, in Quebec for the last 20 years that shows that daycare is not an expense in its investment. And in the budget, they're citing studies that show that $1 invested for a daycare center brings back $1.5 or $1.50 back into revenues into the coffers. And I would say that in some provinces, namely Ontario and in BC, I think there'll be, um, there'll be an urge to, be, uh, to join the program in Ontario, especially because women have been suffering more, the most this recession and the cost of daycare is just so expensive. $65 a day. It's like, I mean, it, it's almost a second mortgage that you have to take to uh, bring up your kids. So that will make a difference. And I think this one 
is a more an, an economic argument than a social argument, an economic environment, because investing in daycares will bring more revenues than it's actually costing taxpayers. Yeah, I mean, we should point out, I, I think the number is 16,000 women who left the workforce during the uh, during the pandemic. Uh, John, what, what's your view on, on how you think other provinces will, will treat this? I mean, there seems to be a, a, a certain political urgency to it from the federal government, uh, given given the jumping off point of the pandemic. But there also seems to be perhaps an appetite in the, in the land and it becomes a this political ball that bounces back and forth. Um, how many provincial premiers want to really stand up and fight the child care argument? Well, I, I remember covering in 2017 the, the, the uh, federal government getting agreements with all the provincial governments, including Quebec, on childcare. I mean, it surprises me that somehow that is not the basis for, for a new agreement. And you simply pour the money into that existing framework. Uh, that was Jean-Yves Duclos' uh, policy, which uh, seemed to pave the way for, for something of this ilk. But nobody's mentioned it today, so I don't really know why. Uh, I mean, I guess the big stumbling block, as always, is going to be cash. And it looks like this is a 50-50 funding uh, arrangement. And so I guess the, the provinces have to find the money. That's probably going to be the biggest stumbling block. Susan, let's talk about the, the overall envelope here. And has the government made the case, has the finance minister made the case for the need for $101 billion uh, in more spending? Uh, it, well, it depends on who he's making that case to. I don't think the Conservatives are going to argue that he made that case. But I think, as I understand it, this budget doesn't have a poison pill in it. But it does, uh, in other words, something the NDP in particular couldn't support. But it does have a lot of things that the NDP want to support, and a lot of it is in that $100 billion. So, you know, we can't take politics out of this. It, it's, I don't think anybody wants to have an election right now, too. But um, as, as John was saying, this government wants to take this into an election whenever that happens. And, uh, and that's the price tag. Is that going to be the debate, uh, Joël Denis? And I'm not suggesting it, you know, that we're going to see an election over this, uh, given what we've heard from the New Democrats. But um, you know, is this, do you see the narrative being framed here that Liberals will do this for the country and uh, you know, it, the Conservatives will shoot back that it's a, a gross exaggeration of, of spending requirements for the country? But uh, I don't know if that's a popular side of that argument to be on in a country that's just got through a pandemic and saw what spending a lot of government money might do for you. Well, exactly. And part of the $100 billion plan, you have to take $12 billion that is still used to fight uh, the uh, pandemic, the wage subsidy program and the rent program. That's in itself is, uh, is $12 billion out of the $100 billion that we are spending. So there's a lot of money still being used to fight uh, the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. But I would say that this is a plan that the Liberal government could easily take to the electorate and even fight provinces. Um, and and remember that there are 52% uh, of the electorate are women. So I think they will want to see um, at least a majority of them see uh, a lot of the uh, measures in this budget come into reality, namely the daycare center program nationally. So I think it's a, a winning formula for the Liberal Party. And if the Conservative uh, Party wants to fight this, well, I, I think I could always uh, wish them good luck. Uh, John, what's your view on that? Well, I, I, I think that if the Liberals don't get their majority back after 
this spending, then they should uh, set up a royal commission of inquiry to find out why. Because <laughs> it's, actually, it's actually not 100 billion; it's 143 billion. If you look over the five-year uh, horizon in this in the document, right. it's 100 billion in the next three years. It's 101.4 in three years, and then yeah, more after that. 101 in three years, and 143 in five or six, I think actually. Um, which tells you all you need to know because it's front-end loaded. And the reason it's front-end loaded is because they want to be able to campaign on it. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, I mean, I think they could point to the fact that, that um, growth is projected to be, a nominal growth projected to be 3.6 billion over the next five, 3.6% uh, right. over the next five years and interest rates at 1.9%. Now, you can, as long as your growth is higher than your interest rates, you can get away with it. You can say that it's sustainable. But that's if everything goes to plan. And we've got we've racked up one point five trillion dollars in debt by the end of this six year horizon from six hundred and fifteen billion dollars in debt when Justin Trudeau came to power. You can't keep racking up fiscal deficits year after year after year and expect nothing bad to happen because right. that's what happened for 26 years under his father, and we ended up in 1995. Let's finish on this, Susan, and that's the, let's use John's comments as a jumping off point here to talk about fiscal anchors. Uh, what we saw, in, uh, I guess the new fiscal anchor is going to be a commitment to, uh, you know, you know, wind down deficits based on the end of COVID spending and a commitment to uh, a sort of a debt to GDP ratio that as I look at it over the next six years, five years, will still be at 50%. Um, is, is that the kind of fiscal anchor that you think experts were wanting to see and see the government commit to? I think they, they insist that it's not out of line with anything you're seeing in any other country, that, um, you know, that we can't compare ourselves anymore to even 1995. We've got to see where the rest of the world is in this um, pandemic. Five years is a long time down the road. Uh, it, it tells you just how deep we are in this and how long it's going to take to come out of it. But um, I, I don't think they want to be compared to uh, past governments. They want to be compared to other governments in the world right now. And on that, they say they're doing uh, pretty okay. Joel, right, what are your thoughts on their, uh, their approach to the notion of a fiscal anchor? Well, there, are, there were some numbers thrown around in the fiscal update last fall. You know, they would take into account um, unemployment rate, number of hours work, that was not in the budget. And the new fiscal God, uh, anchor seems to be the debt to GDP ratio at about 50%. In, listen, the pandemic threw everything out the window in terms of financial planning. We have to start from zero because this crisis threw every government's financial plan out the window. So right now, this is what we have to work with. But right. also, I would say that what the United States will be doing in terms of uh, economic plan to rekindle the economy will also help the Canadian economy. So maybe at the end of the day, we'll have more economic growth as a result of what's happening down south in Washington. All right, John, let me hear you on this in the context of, I guess, you know, how good a fiscal anchor is depends on how big the boat is you're floating. But Right, right. Well, I think, I think that uh, many people would have preferred to see, uh, and David Dodge uh, suggested this, and sort of Mark Carney, actually, the, the idea that you link your uh, debt servicing costs to as a proportion of your revenue and you keep it below 10 percent mm -hmm. and they just about do that even even in the furthest out years uh, you don't they don't go above that but they, there's not a lot of room there if there was a, a shock of some kind and of course anybody who thinks there can't be a shock well maybe there'll be another pandemic all right uh, listen thank you all for your uh, perspectives on this tonight good to talk to you we'll talk again take care thanks peter 
That's all the time we have for this federal budget special edition. I'm Peter Van Dusen from all of us here at CPAC. Thanks for watching. See you next time.